This episode of Seize the Yay is brought to you by Belvita's new Bakes and Coconut Bites. Tasty, gluten and nut-free snack options for on the go. Don't rush. Don't feel like you have to figure it all out by the time you're 25 because there will be so many different forks in the road. If you go through your life and sort of say, these are experiences and I'm going to build one on top of the other, you might step sideways, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's very old school thinking. Uh, to think I'm only going to do X and that's what I'm going to become and that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to die having done that. You got to take chances on yourself because if you're not going to take them, absolutely nobody else is. It's the same thing when I, you know, when people put themselves down, I'm like, don't do that. Lots of other people will do that for you. Don't do it to yourself. Know when to lead, know when to follow and know when to get the hell out of the way. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. While last week's episode was one of those chats you know I love that show a different side of someone you've probably already heard of, I equally love introducing you to people and stories you might not already know. And while sometimes that's because our guest is earlier on in their journey or in a niche behind-the-scenes area, for Farah Muhammad, it's more the opposite, playing on a global, life-changing scale beyond most of our day-to-day lives. We met during our incredible trip to Necker Island with business chicks around this time last year, where I first heard her story and was absolutely captivated by every word, as I'm sure you guys will be. You don't expect the guest speaker to then sit down with you for a casual chat afterwards, but Farah is humble and attentive in a way that absolutely belies the incredible way she is shaping our world for the better. She is interesting in so many ways, from her own experience as a Ugandan refugee of Indian heritage and Muslim faith who fled to Canada in her early life, to then serving as CEO of the Malala Fund, inspired by Malala, who survived an assassination attempt by the Taliban for going to school and became the youngest person ever to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. And Farah loves to laugh, which left us in stitches many times in a beautiful, heart-wrenching and heartwarming blend of the serious and the silly, which you guys know is what I love about CZA the most. There is so much in between, but I won't reveal any more here. I will let Farah tell you the rest herself. I hope you guys enjoy as much as I did. Farah Muhammad, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be joining you. I'm excited. I was absolutely blown away by you on Necker Island last year when we met, and even more so now after diving deeper into your story. So thank you so, so much for joining. You're such a joy to be around. (laughs) As are you. I remember very well the moment that we met on Necker Island and the sheer beauty and kindness and playfulness you exuded. So I'm so thrilled that we're chatting. It's, I guess, about a year after we first met. Oh my God, this is pretty much our anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. It sure is. 
I just remember how amazing it was to watch someone speak about the incredible things they've done, but then get to sit down with you afterwards and do my regular kind of fangirl thing of like, oh my God, I love you so much. I'm so inspired. (laughs) (laughs) But then for you to be so attentive and warm and you just gave us so much of your time and attention. It's not that common for people doing such huge things in the world to really listen. And you just remembered so many small things about me that I mentioned, even just at the start of this conversation, you're just, you are one in a million, Farah. (laughs) Well, thanks. You're going to make me blush, but I've got great role models. You know, I've, I've been surrounded by really amazing people, men and women who have just taught me that to listen and to stop and to really be present Mm -hmm. is one of the best things you can do. And so, you know, I was growing up by two parents who um, gave us a voice, right? You, you were never said, well, that's, you know, this is adults business or whatever. So I, I feel like I'm, I come by it pretty naturally. And I'm, always so curious to learn about other people and their stories because you always learn something right if you if you take the time you you will learn something and most often you'll be surprised absolutely one of my favorite quotes is everyone you meet knows something you don't and it's to your greatest (laughs) detriment if you dismiss someone as maybe not being your person or not being relevant to the path you might be on because if you dig deep enough there's always something Yeah, a point of connection everywhere, right? Totally. So before we kick off, I start every episode by asking guests, what's the most down to earth thing about you? Because I think particularly in the digital world we live in, our identities are all titles and what's happening on the surface, which Mm. of course is part of the picture, but doesn't really reveal the human beneath it all. And it's that humanizing that allows people to identify with you and really learn the most from your story. And you have some pretty impressive achievements to your name, but humanize yourself to get us started what's something really relatable about you I love to laugh I think it's I have a great sense of humor and that allows me to laugh at myself (laughs) Um, but I do I think that's the most relatable thing you know I always say that you know no matter how how tense it is how stressed it is how much pressure you're under you have to be able to like have a giggle maybe not in the moment but at some point along the way laughter has been sort of my prescription for all things crazy or um, insurmountable or even sometimes sad. And so I think that's the most normal thing about me is my propensity to laugh. Oh my gosh, that's the perfect soundbite for this whole show. (laughs) (laughs) That idea that it's very easy to take ourselves and our lives so seriously. I mean, we're just talking about the idea before we started recording of how much we stifle our playfulness and laughter as we become adults and, and just get really bogged down in the serious responsibilities of life. But keeping that ability to find joy, even in really stressful, serious moments is what this show's all about. And I love that that's something you really value too. Mm-hmm. Especially now in COVID, right? Absolutely. I think more and more people are, are trying to figure out what don't they have to be serious about. Thinking about some of my friends who are really thinking about their careers and their lives and just how serious they've been. And now they're sort of like, you know what? I want to I want to get my crazy back. I want to get my creative back. I want to put all those things and those dreams that I had in motion yeah. um, and not wait. So I think that especially in times like this, that ability to sort of step outside yourself, laugh a little and think outside the box a little bit is is like a real joy. It's, it's sort of like a silver lining to this craziness that we're living in. Yeah. And I think for many people, it's actually the first time they've ever broken that autopilot circuit and asked those questions about 
What do I want to leave behind? What do I want to take with me? And I've always been fascinated by those kinds of sliding doors moments that give you a whole new perspective and shape your story, even though it might just be one tiny conversation. It might not be a global pandemic, but just even a fleeting moment in time that totally changes your path. Mm. I think you already know this, but being adopted, my whole early life was defined by the idea that but for one small thing, I could have lived a completely different life. And coming back to your own story, of course, the first section is your way TA, which is tracing back from your earliest beginnings to remind everyone there are many chapters before the one we walked in on. Mm. You didn't start off in Toronto and had a different but similar experience to my own being of Indian heritage, but born and raised in Uganda up until the time when Idi Amin expelled Indian Ugandans from the country and gave everyone 90 days to leave, Mm. which is just unimaginable. So tell us about those early days. Was it your parents that instilled in you this ability to, you know, come from really stressful moments and still be able to find a beautiful life? Do you remember any of that time? How formative was it? And how has that led to where you've ended up? You know, it's, it's funny. If you would have asked me this question, uh, I just turned 50 this year, but if you would have asked me this question in my 30s, I would have been so uncomfortable answering it. Wow. Uh, mostly because, yeah, mostly because I never really understood, accepted, acknowledged, spoke about being a refugee. As you said, I've got Indian heritage. I was born in, in Africa, in Uganda. And at the age of two, my parents had to flee and they came to Canada. And ironically, in two days, it'll make 40 days. I think Farah meant to say 40 years here, guys. Since we landed in this unbelievably amazing country. Oh, my God. I was at my parents' house. Yeah, I was at my parents' house for lunch yesterday. My dad said, I want to show you something. And he took out this certificate that was stamped with the Canadian entry stamp. And it says October 28th, 1972. Wow. And it shows where we came in in Quebec And I cried, like I teared up. And just because I'm so, I'm equally uh, proud of being Canadian as I am proud of being a refugee. And again, I would never have said that 20 years ago. Mm. But, you know, so I'll tell you a little bit about what I know. And and I'd preface this by saying that this is my parents' story more than it's my own, my early days, right? Because they had to make all the decisions. And when they decided to leave Uganda, they left everything they had. So they were brought up in you know, middle-class, wealthy families. They had everything they ever dreamed of. A political situation made it impossible for them to stay. And so they came to Canada. And the reason they came to Canada was, and this will speak to networks. This is a perfect example of how networks matter. (laughs) But uh, our prime minister at the time was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And the Aga Khan is our spiritual follower. And the two of them studied together at university. I know, right? The story goes that the Aga Khan had reached out to the Canadian government through his friend, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and had made it known that these 30,000 Ismailis, which is our, our sect of being a Muslim, needed a place to go. And so a lot, of Mus- a lot of Ismailis came to Canada at that time. And so we were one of the many families who came here in 1972. And, you know, my parents started over, you know, they worked in, you know, jobs that they would never have had to work in otherwise. They came here with two kids, a couple suitcases, and a couple hundred bucks yeah. and started to rebuild. And until recently, Malala wrote a book called We Are Displaced, and she asked me to be one of the chapters. 
And Mara. yeah, the reason I mentioned that is because I, at first I was like, no, no, I don't want to be a chapter. I, I, it's not my story to tell. And then I went to talk to my parents and I asked them permission to tell their story. And I learned a lot of things about our departure that I didn't know as a, as a kid, uh, as a teenager, as a young adult, and then as a grown woman. We had never talked about the actual departure. Oh my! So gosh. it's been a real journey. It's been an incredible journey. Um, and I feel so blessed. I feel blessed to be a smiley. I feel blessed to be Canadian. I, I feel very blessed that I was born in a place that was known as the Pearl of Africa. And I'm quite certain that at some point in my life, I will do something to make that country better. Yeah. So it's sort of full circle, right? Yeah. And that reminds me that identity is something that unravels. Like it, it's definitely very messy in your teens, even messier in your 20s and just keeps getting more complicated. Mm -hmm. But then at a certain point, you just start to sort of unravel all the layers and become really comfortable in who you are. And I think like you, a lot of people find that a big part of their identity or what becomes part of their identity in adulthood as they start to have conversations with their parents are parts of time that they don't necessarily remember mm -hmm. and that you might have been even oblivious to for a lot of your life until you realise actually it's my parents' story and not my own, but it's also how you became who you are. So absolutely. it is part of your identity. Yeah, absolutely. I think the story was, I didn't feel that was one that I could tell because I wasn't sure how open they had been. Yeah. And so for me to tell their story through a platform like a Malala book was, you know, I felt <laughs> like I needed to seek permission, right? Yeah. And I'm so fortunate, Sarah, I don't remember a thing about leaving Uganda. I have cousins who are five, six, seven, who remember everything. Oh my God. And their memories are not pleasant. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm incredibly blessed to have the parents who I do have who felt the need to protect us. And then when the time was right for me to understand, opened up their hearts and poured it all out again. Because remember, that unleashes a lot of memories, mm. right? It unleashes a lot of angst and hurt and disappointment. Um, but at the end of the day, it also unleashes this sense of gratefulness that my entire family has for, for being Canadian. Yeah. So at what point did you start to think about what you wanted to be and what you wanted to make of yourself in life? Because I think one of the most interesting things is that as children, it's so straightforward. Our wants and needs and likes, if we like something, we do it. If we don't like it, we don't do it. Mm. And then at some point, layers of expectation and societal norms and all these things start to cloud our judgment. And then, you know, at some point we have to decide what's going to be our vocation and looking at what you chose at uni, political science and government <laughs> at Queen's and then international relations, I would have thought that it was influenced a lot by your beginnings. But I actually listened to you in another podcast and heard that you hadn't even spoken to your parents really about the story until uni. Yeah. So how did you get to that? How did you figure out that that's what you wanted to do? So I, I actually thought I'd be a lawyer. <laughs> so I went to Queen's oh, University. <laughs> I know, right? So I went to Queen's University in a political science degree. And I'll just back up for a moment. You know, I, we're Ismailis and so we're very liberal Muslims, but the majority of Ismailis kids are either doctors or lawyers. <laughs> and so when I chose Queen's, there weren't any Ismailis. In fact, there were very few minorities yeah. when I was there. And so I chose this school and everyone made the assumption, including myself, that I would go, I'd finish my four years, I'd apply to law school, I'd become a lawyer. And um, in my first year, I started to really pay attention to student government. I started to pay attention to what the world looked like. No, I thought it looked like. And when I came out of uni, I 
started to volunteer in a political campaign. It was 1993. I had just finished traveling around Europe. I made a deal with my parents. If I got on the Dean's honor roll, would you split a trip around Europe with me? And so I got on the, I know, right? They were, they were great deal makers. I mean, these You're two You're a great deal maker. <laughs> so I, I, I graduated from university, got on a plane and met some of my friends in Europe and spent two months and a half traveling around Europe. I went to Russia and it was, you know, it was incredible. I went to Poland and I went to Russia because I'd studied American Russian politics in the time of detente. You're too young to remember that. But I decided I wanted to walk under Red Square. Anyway, so I did that and I was really hungry to understand world politics and the dynamics of world politics. Yeah. But I got back and the job that I was supposed to have I was taking a gap year between my undergrad and my master's. The job that I was supposed to have was given away. So <laughs> rude. It was brutal. It was, I was like, what? I spent all that money. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my parents, incredibly hardworking people, but it was the summer and my father and my mother said, well, you can't sit around. So you have to find something to do. Anyway, there was an election on 1993 and I started volunteering for the liberal candidate, Patty Torsney. She was 31 years of age Whoa. and running in a riding that nobody thought that she could win. And she won. She won this unbelievable campaign. And so fast forward, I thought I was going to get a job. She was over at my house on Friday night. She was laughing at me for this. But she said, you remember when I didn't hire you right away and you wrote me a letter and you said, here are all the reasons why you should have hired me? <laughs> I was like, do you have to continue to tell that story? Oh anyway. Oh my gosh, it so describes your initiative though. I love that. <laughs> anyway, I took a Joe job at a landscape company. I was the accounting clerk there. Then I went to my master's and half Way through my master's, Patty called me up and said, now I think you're ready. You said you were going to do your master's. You did your master's. That's why I didn't hire you, by the way. Come to Ottawa. And so I worked in the constituency office and that started my love for politics and sort of paved the way. So go into, you know, you go into school to be a lawyer, you come out working with politicians. And I just feel that I've spoken to enough lawyers that the training was fantastic for them, the way that you think, the way that you surmise, the way that you debate. But I know very few, I know some, but very few really happy lawyers. So I think I, I, I ended up exactly where I needed to be. Oh, I hear you on the lawyer thing. <laughs> I know. Speaking to the converted, few, huh? <laughs> but I truly believe, on the other hand, that there are some people whose yay is a corporate context where their talents are channeled and where they have structure and they love black letter law. But I feel like the majority of us have gone into law as a clever way to use our brains and do something respectable because we don't actually know what else we want to do, which is fortunate because it does actually equip you for pretty much any other direction that you might want to go in. Mm -hmm. But I also love love tracing back through chapters like this because it's good to remember that there was a Farah who didn't know what she wanted to do and who didn't know what was going to come next. Oh gosh, yeah. And that Farah has sprung up from time to time. Like <laughs> at one point I thought I would run uh, in politics and then I, you know, I passed 10 years working with some incredible politicians, Patty, as I mentioned, but also Anne McClellan. And I started with her when she was the Minister of Justice and then we went to health. And then she became the deputy prime minister. And so by the time I was out of politics, I kind of felt like, no, I'm not sure I want to run. Mm. Now, you never say never. I'm 50. Uh, <laughs> There's but, still time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just sort of feel like it's incredible the path, like, you know, legal training, political training sets you up for such incredible success. 
Yeah. You know, again, the way that you, you think about the world, the way you meet, the way you network, the way that you see yourself and the way other people see you, your understanding of how politics and economics and social issues interconnect and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I guess it could be said that there are some people who go into politics to become politicians and some people who go into politics, not necessarily to have their name on the ballot, but to do so many other things in different ways. Same almost as a lawyer. Yeah. There need to be lawyers who continue on as lawyers because the world needs them. Mm. And there need to be people who are legally trained and you know maybe never practice. But that's the beauty of education. It opens yeah. so many doors that you didn't even know exist. Absolutely. And that maybe didn't exist at the time you started studying yes. to get into what you wanted to get into, but they kind of unraveled, as you know, the world is moving so fast. It's an exciting time to think that a job that's your perfect job might not even exist yet. Exactly. So I think that was really interesting. And I, I did want to ask you whether or not you ever aspired to be a politician, but I think it also <laughs> brings up the idea that even if you spent, you know, a decade or a huge amount of time in an industry that you don't end up staying in, nothing is ever a waste. Mm -hmm. I think people really lament that they've invested all this time and energy into relationships or a career or something they ultimately walk away from. But I think you just reframe it. You're not walking away from anything. It was just a stepping stone towards whatever comes next. I absolutely believe in building blocks. Yes. I really, really do. You know, When I was working in my first political job, I learned about communications. Like I literally had to deal with the media, not knowing anything about formally trained uh, people who are in communications to deal with media. But I learned trial by fire, and that became largely the area that I've um, played in, right? Partnerships, communications. I would never have gotten that kind of on the on the on the job training as I did in that job. So all of these things are building blocks, and I think you're right. And it makes me sad to think that people do lament the time that they spend in certain things. But look, I when I when I speak to young women, I sort of say, don't rush. Like don't don't feel like you have to figure it all out by the time you're 25, because there will be so many different forks in the road, and each of the things that you've done in the past will point you in the right direction. I don't, and it's hard, right? I have the benefit of many, many years now, but I do think that if you go through your life and sort of say, these are experiences and I'm going to build one on top of the other, you might step sideways, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think we have to train young people to be comfortable with that because it's very old school thinking uh, to think I'm only going to do X and that's what I'm going to become. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to die having done that. Versus the many different careers that you can have now. And as you say, really, you are spot on. There are so many jobs we don't even know about. Yeah. And I love what you said about forks in the road as well, because I think if I want to use this platform to remind anyone of anything, it's that your pathway to joy or to fulfillment or to whatever you want to achieve in life is not linear. Mm -mm. It's not supposed to be. It's a sideways, backwards, forwards, around, you know, circles. It's just a total roller coaster. But Mm -hmm. every part, you know, I always say you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. Every step, whether it's backwards, or forwards is still formative. It's just, you know, finding out something you don't like is just as valuable as finding out something you do like. You know, I just have a visual I have to share with you. So I'm embarrassed to admit, and now this is... (laughs) Are you getting embarrassed? It must be a big deal. No, this is is kind of goofy too. Until recently, I hadn't watched Harry Potter movies, but I've been spending (gasps) a lot of time. Exactly. See, I know my name is Farah Muhammad. 
and I started watching Harry Potter in my 50s. Uh, but I'm only <laughs> just turned 50, just for the record. But my niece comes over. She's like, Auntie Farah, what do you want to watch? And I think the sweetest world, words in the world are Auntie Farah, by the way. <laughs> so Auntie Farah, what do you want to watch? And of course, she's uh, she was 12 at the time. She's now 13, just, just recently turned 13. I said, anything you want to watch. She's like, great, we'll watch Harry Potter. So I was like, okay, do I tell her? Because you want to start off with like number four, right? I'm like, do I tell her that I've never seen it? <laughs> or, anyway, cold, rainy weekend, and we watched all of the Harry Potter movies. But as you were just talking about staircases, I just had the visual of, you know, when they're walking up the staircase and then it pivots and it goes in a different direction? <laughs> that's yeah, exactly they all start moving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I just thought of when you said that. But you know, you also said something else, Sarah, and your language is so um, intentional, and I love that about you. I think you're you're so clear and you're so clever about the words that you use, but you just use the word backwards. And we as, I think, you know, well-intentioned, well-educated people are so uncomfortable with the idea of going backwards to go forwards. Oh, yeah. And it drives me absolutely bonkers because I don't know when we got it into our minds that you couldn't – it's okay to step sideways in our minds. It's okay to step 10 steps forward, you know, even if you have to take two steps, you know, another direction. But the moment we say we've had to go backwards, people see that as a sign of failure. Yeah. And I, I just wish we could stop that nonsense because if you don't step back, how are you ever going to be able to see what's really in front of you? I really, this is the one thing that just drives me absolutely batshit crazy, <laughs> right? Is this idea that we always have to be moving forward. Always, always, always. Yes. And do you know what also frustrates me on that point is that we would rather be furiously running on a conveyor belt that goes nowhere than go backwards. Yeah. We're so gratified by momentum and scared to take a step backwards that we'd rather just consume ourselves into burnout running on the spot mm -hmm. than take a step backwards. Do you think that will be the case post-COVID? Do you think people have slowed down and see, you know, the benefit of not moving at the speed that we've been moving at? That is a great question and I hope so. I think, oh, I yes, I think most people have had to take stock of their life in a way that they've never had time for and never been forced to sit with a bit more stillness and take that step back and just ask, who am I when I'm not productive? We've all had the chance to choose what we put back into our life and what we choose to leave behind. It's the clear slate that we've all hoped for, you know. Mm. We always say, I wish I had a minute to just re-strategize and breathe and we've had a year to do that. So I hope that of all things people do take out of this year, it's that they realize they have more conscious choice yeah, over where too. they go next and they can, you know, realize they've struck the wrong balance for so long and, and correct it. Yeah, we'll see, right? I wish I could do some benchmarking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wish <laughs> oh I could take a survey on my idea. LinkedIn. <laughs> Anybody who, you know, fits this bill and then, you know, a year from now, do the survey again to see how many people actually made a change and stuck with it. That Wouldn't would that be, be a great, great study? The Farah Files. <laughs> <laughs> I was, that's so funny. A friend of mine was like, do you want to launch a podcast? I'm like, what would you call it? And, and he said, he's so smart. He's crazy creative. And he said, let's call it The Farah Files. And I was Stop. like, and aside from my mother... Who's going to listen to that? <laughs> Let's be. Well, me. So that's two people. And then, exactly. Two people. It's worth it. Um, and then I wanted to do one called I Can't Make This Shit Up. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my podcast. gosh. You have to do that. Right? Isn't that great? And then other people like Richard or, you know, I'd, I'd try to get really funny people on also that just... Like really, if you think about the moments in your life where you're like, oh my God, I could not make that shit up. 
yeah, remember my hens, right. the bachelorette, where yes. Richard was like in a toilet paper dress? I yes. was like, you actually cannot <laughs> make that shit up. <laughs> exactly. Who would have thunk it, huh? Oh, my God. I still am like, if there wasn't a video, I would actually think that I just like took mushrooms on that <laughs> island and just dreamt up a whole thing that never actually happened. <laughs> oh, no. But what's what happens in Necker Island stays at Necker Island, right? That's Absolutely. the rule by which we live. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but I, I do think that there's something to be said about you know, as you sort of mentioned just now, reflecting, right? Reflecting and being okay with not being on warp speed all of the time. Hello, lovely neighborhood. Just jumping into the episode to share a tasty update from today's partner in Yay, Belvita. Now, you guys know how much I love celebrating Yay, and Belvita's new bakes and coconut bites are the perfect way to start your day with Yay. Deliciously designed to brighten the morning, Belvita's Australian made bakes and coconut bites are also gluten and nut free. With no artificial colors or flavors, each snack provides a source of fiber, guaranteeing more out of every bite. It is the perfect for a morning snack, especially to get me through editing these episodes for you guys. Check out these new Bakes and Bites available now at Coles in the portable breakfast aisle. And it's really interesting that you said it's hard because I'm talking with all these years of experience. I actually think it's easier for us. We should be listening to you because you have the benefit of hindsight and can look back and safely reassure us that all of those chapters might not have made sense at the time, but they now make sense, even if you didn't stay in them all forever. You are the exact person who has the perspective (laughs) to say, honestly, don't worry. You're not meant to have your forever plan right now. So if you're not in a chapter that you love, just find the thing it's teaching you for the next one like sit in every part of your life as if it's preparing you for what you know something is coming next. next exactly and you know I've what I love about what I've been able to do is I have a lot of young women who reach out to me and oh can you be my mentor and one of the things I promised is that I wouldn't be a mentor to one person because unless you can do it really really well and spend the time then you're not really doing it you know you're not doing service to that person who's sort of putting their faith and their trust mm. so I've been doing this thing where Every week I speak to two young women around that and just sort of talk to them about their life and their career. And they always ask me the same thing. What would you do differently? And I always say, look, I would have taken advice and actually really listened and acted on that. And one of those pieces of advice that I remember a lot of people telling me is slow down. Mm. Don't be in such a hurry. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what else? And what's next? And I'm like, no, 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 seriously. And I don't live with regrets. Like I'm, you know, I guess I'm very fortunate that way. I just, you know, not everything works out, but when it doesn't, as we've already said, you learn from it. But I was just laughing with this young woman today and she's trying to figure out how to make this move. And she's like, how do you know when it's right? I'm like, do you sleep, make the decision? And then if you sleep really well, then you know you've made the right decision. She's like, you don't honestly believe that, do you? I'm like, Mm, made a lot of decisions that way. <laughs> and, and I felt like such a disappointment well. <laughs> to her. And she's like, oh, oh, okay. I think, you know, she expected me to say something that was just like a real... Like profound strategy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you have to trust your gut. I, my point was you got to trust your gut, right? You got to mm. you gotta take chances on yourself because if you're not going to take them, absolutely nobody else is. It's the same thing when I when people say, oh, I'm just the whatever or... You know, when people put themselves down, I'm like, don't do that. Lots of other people will do that for you. Don't do it to yourself. It's Amazing just, advice. You know. And I love the idea as well that it's incredible to be a mentor one-on-one, but if that's not your ultimate calling and it doesn't suit you, 
it does deprive the masses of being able to access you. You know, you can be an example and a role model and you have absolutely done that and created such wonderful bigger platforms for so many young girls and women. And I think that's, you know, what you've described as galvanizing the world's greatest resource, young girls and young women to cultivate a new generation of leaders, which I just think is so incredible. But before we move on to that chapter, I'd love to ask, because I think it's something that if you haven't had a lot of people in your network or had a reason to learn much about it just because of life circumstances, not everyone understands what it's like to grow up Muslim and mm. what your experience has been like, particularly in the last few generations. Mm. I imagine it's been quite a difficult experience in recent times. And I'd love to hear if that was ever a challenging part of your upbringing. You mentioned earlier that you describe yourself as a minority. Mm. Have you felt that way? Has it been something that has been really present in your journey or? You asked the tough know, question, so I thought this was just going to be a... <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, it's so, so- Fluff and nonsense and yay, but with a dose of, of the serious no, stuff. No, it's not fluff and nonsense. They're all really, uh, they're all really thoughtful questions, actually. Um, when I was in my young teens, I um, was beat up and called a packy <gasps> and rolled down a hill and it kept a, and I don't talk about it, Sarah, to be honest, I, don't, I really don't talk about it. And this is probably the second time I've talked about it. Oh, far and it was such a defining moment for me because I was really confused, hurt, ashamed, scared. Mm. Um, only my sister knew. My parents didn't even know. I don't even think my parents know now. Um, we lived in a place called Hamilton, which is a really great place, but we lived in Hamilton. And shortly thereafter, we moved to uh, Burlington. And Burlington at the time was very not ethnically diverse, like not anywhere, shape or form. I think my sister and I were the only people of color in our school. Wow. And I always felt like a minority, always. Yeah. Growing in Burlington, you feel like a minority. Going to Queen's University, you feel like a minority. Going to Western, check that box again. But I never allowed it to define me. And I, and I use the word allow uh, purposely. Yeah. So I knew I was, but I never let it hold me back. And I watched a lot of my friends who I think felt held back. So I had three or four things going for me unbelievable parents and an incredible network of cousins who trailblazed things like being in sport or being really successful business people or being entrepreneurial. Like there was no deficit. There was no, you know, it was not hard for me to find really great examples of really successful people in my family Mm. and in my parents' friends and my parents as well. So I think I had really great role models of people who were ethnic, who were different, who were Muslim and very successful. So my mindset was already, you know, was programmed for a certain level of success. But when I was at Queens, I worked at a bar. <laughs> I know we had to do the sensitivity training. So we were doing the sensitivity. And now remember, this is like two decades ago. Okay. We were doing the sensitivity training and I was the only person of color there. And the person who was giving the course said, so let's talk about, you know, working with people of color or minorities or whatever the language was. I think it was minorities at the time. I don't think it was people of color. I think that's a relatively new term we all, we all use now. But, and they, then he called on me and I was like, well, that was really effective. Like call out the one oh brown person gosh. in the group. And so there, there have been moments like that where I have, I have felt very, very brown. Mm. When you, when you ask me about being Muslim, 
you know, my parents are spiritual, uh, religious, yes, but not you know, we don't go to Kane. We, we don't call it mosque, we call it Kane. And we're also very, very liberal when it comes to being uh, Muslims. Mm-hmm. But they did instill in us, you know, the five different tenets of being being a Muslim, right? So there's regular attendance, there's giving dasan, and dasan is like you give uh, X percentage of your salary to charitable causes. You know, there's volunteerism. And there are all these things that they taught us, but they taught them to us as our faith, but as people. Yeah. So I don't think they taught it to us because we happen to be Muslim. I think they taught it to us because they happen to be really good people. Um, I'll just say this. The beauty of being Muslim is that it is an understood religion by many. The challenge is that it's a misunderstood religion by so many as well. And when that came to light for me was obviously during 9-11. So I was at a nice little place called White Point, Nova Scotia, with all the ministers of justice and all the solicitors general. And are, you know, the head of corrections, right? If, if we want to put it that way in terms of Australia or even America. Yeah. So we were all gathered together for an annual meeting of all of these people. And it was 9-11. It was the actual day. We were in this very remote place in Eastern Canada and the planes hit the buildings. And my boss was called back to Ottawa on a government plane, which I went with her. And I then served out as the director of communications to the minister of justice dealing with 9-11. So I was on the front page of papers, Farah Muhammad, Muslim, (gasps) being spokesperson for this. And it was a very, very, very trying time because whether or not the intention was to spotlight the role of Muslims during 9-11 and the tragedy and the atrocity of what happened in New York, that's what happened, right? And so Muslims became the picture that everyone thought of when they thought of terrorism. Yeah. And I found that really hard. You know, there were things like I, there were certain things I I was not allowed to do anymore for safety reasons. And I remember being on a plane and a man accosting me and telling me that I should be embarrassed. And I'm sort of accused me of being a sellout to the Muslim population because I was the government spokesperson. And that was painful. Like, you know, my parents' house got egged during that time. So there, there are moments where I just think to myself, we have to be better than this right? You, we, we have to be more open than this. We need to be more understanding or curious or accepting. And because a bunch of, I wouldn't even call them Muslims because Muslims are not programmed to be that way. Mm. Uh, they're not programmed to hate. We're programmed to love. We're not programmed to go to war. We're programmed to build peace. And so because of these nasty individuals, I feel like Islam has never been seen the same. Yeah. And for that, I, I, I feel very, very sad. Yeah. Uh, I think there are some people who understand and welcome, and there are others who don't want to understand, who do not want to welcome, and do, will never, ever take the time to understand uh, what the Muslim faith really is about. Long, long answer to your very short question, <laughs> but it's a very complicated issue for me. I'm so, so grateful for you sharing that experience. And I think the reason I ask tough questions sometimes and try to cover topics that fundamentally aren't as sort of yay and fluffy as as other topics is because helping people understand, like it's such a huge barrier to so many people, to their joy, to face things like this, to face issues like this. And I think the more we talk about them and normalize conversations like this about what it's like 
on a human level, Mm -hmm. the more it helps combat that kind of behavior because, yeah, people can humanize the issue and Mm. you see people's families and themselves get targeted and, and so affected. And I think there are incredibly fundamentalist minorities in every religion and not just every religion, but in every sector of society, in every kind of small group. So, Absolutely. You know, I, I can't empathize, but I sympathize so much with how one incident has made a lot of people's lives very difficult. Mm-hmm. It does, though. You know, the one thing I'll say is I think it's given me even more I'll use the word you did, empathy, compassion, understanding of what other people go through too. Mm. I think if you've never experienced that kind of hurt, it's really sometimes very difficult uh, to stop and try to understand somebody else's hurt. Yeah. I'm so grateful for you sharing that. I, I find that so interesting because unless people are willing to share experiences like that with you, you can't understand the depth of the issue or, or how complex it actually is. But I didn't used to. It's it's really been in the last Um, 10 years, I felt more comfortable being that honest. Because I think that people might hear that and go, oh, X, Y, or Z. And now I just don't seem to care what people think, right? (laughs) So that's something that comes with age. I think that is one of the most liberating things you can do for yourself is just stop being such a slave to other people's opinions and thoughts and beliefs. So you've gone on to have many more chapters and are on the cusp of another, which is very, very exciting. (laughs) You know, the last decade has been a really formative decade for you. And that's pretty much been the decade since you founded Girls 20 in 2011. Mm -hmm. And then in 2017, we were appointed CEO of the Malala Fund and then worked for the Toronto Region Board of Trade and are now agitating for a new chapter of change. So before we talk about the agitation and bring us up to speed with the now, can you talk us through founding Girls 20, what it means for you to be creating such a beautiful platform for education, entrepreneurship and global experiences? And then also, I mean, I could talk to you for hours. I'm sorry I've left (laughs) so little time for these topics, but talk us also through working alongside Malala because what an incredible human being. For those who don't know, I don't think there are many people who don't know, but if you don't know Malala's story, she survived an assassination attempt by the Taliban just for going to school and became the youngest person ever to receive the Nobel Peace Prize for the work that she's done since then. And Farah headed up the Malala Fund from 2017 to... For a couple of years, yeah. Yeah, a couple of years. Yeah. So tell us about that part of your life. Sure. So, yeah, I'll start with Girls 20. So really quickly, Girls 20... Um, was born out of a need. So nowhere in the world was anyone really talking about female labor force participation and the impact it has on a country's GDP. And the reason that's important is because if we don't have women working at full capacity, we're not going to have the kind of robust economies we need for clear um, and impactful healthcare systems. We're not going to have the kind of innovations we need uh, to keep countries growing and Um, attracting the best talent. So, you know, we created this platform at the Clinton Global Initiative, and it was uh, under the Belinda Stronach Foundation to begin with, actually, we created this platform that really brought together politics and economics. And we said, (laughs) look, the G20, I know, not not so hard, right? This is not uh, rocket science, but the G20 was born in an economic crisis, and it was meant to deal with how do we get our economies back on track? Well, one of the best investments you can make is in women. Two stats, women spend 90% of their dollar, uh, every dollar they make on their family. Men spend about 30%. 
Okay. So that big disparity, you can sort of see where does that money go into? It goes into education, it goes into healthcare, it goes into feeding the family, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an economic spinoff from employing a woman. The second thing is that if you add, I think they sort of said, if you even got women, uh, and this stat might be old now, but if you got women to work even at, I guess, two thirds of what men would work, it, it would add trillions of dollars to your economy. I mean, it's crazy, the impact. So look, we looked at it and went, what? You want, you want resources? Do you want quick fixes? Do you want something that's going to make sense and that impacts 50% of your population at least? It's female labor force participation. So we created this platform. We then started to harass uh, G20 leaders to get this on their agenda. It got on their agenda. And at the same time, so we had this global summit, one girl from each G20 country. They'd gathered together in the country that was hosting the G20. So it was Canada first, then Paris, then Mexico, Turkey, Japan, uh, Argentina. I'm not doing this in order. Um, (laughs) Mexico, Russia, you know, unbelievably Beijing. Um, And what we did was we always made sure we were on the agenda of the G20. And at the same time, these young women would come together for 10 days. They'd get unbelievable courses. So Bain and company would teach them how to strategically think. Edelman would teach them how to communicate and do media interviews. Somebody else, um, Norton Rose Fulbright, this unbelievable woman called Carol Ann Edwards, would teach them about leadership capacity. Now imagine you have all of those skills and you're 18. They'd get their first business card from us. They'd learn how to shake a hand from us. You know, all of these things that just make you stand out. Anyway, they'd go back home. They'd launch their own social profit venture. And the only thing we said was, you pick what's important to you, but make sure it impacts women and girls in your own backyard. And then just as I was walking up the door to Malala Fund, I launched something called Girls on Boards. And this is a program that teaches um, young women how to be on a board. So they go through an actual accredited program and how to be on a community board. They get matched with a mentor. That mentor also takes the program. They then get matched to a, a social profit charitable board somewhere here in Canada. And they serve on that board for at least one year. And so now they've got training. They've got a mentor. They've got a program. They've got a placement. And they've now beginning to start their networks. And you and I both know networks matter. So that was Girls 20. And I did that. I think it's been like the most amazing thing that I've ever done in my life, putting girls on boards. If I do nothing else, again, that will be, I think, my most creative, no brainer solution to some of the challenges we face. Then I got recruited to work with Malala and nobody can say that. <laughs> no to that, that opportunity, <laughs> oh my you know, gosh, no. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable opportunity. Malala had been through so much and loads of people would have just sort of said, I've done my part. I'm going to go live my life. And she didn't. Yeah. Um, time and time again, she stood up. And what I loved about working with Malala was she made it her business that every time she was invited to something, so it didn't matter if it was the UN or a meeting with this philanthropist or that philanthropist, she would always take a young woman with her. Wow. And she did it so that people could see that there are thousands of Malalas out there, girls who just want an education. It made people see things differently, right? So it was such an amazing honor, you know, laid the groundwork for a strategic plan. I was honored to bring her and her family back to Pakistan for the first time since her attack, raised millions of dollars and set up great partnerships with organizations who really care uh, about young women and their futures. So like Apple, Citibank, Starbucks, um, Airbnb, you know, these companies that just needed 
um, the opportunity, and I will say that, just needed the opportunity to give back. And so working with Malala was phenomenal, you know, and the best part, as amazing as it was to work with Malala and the team at the Malala Fund, it was when we went to Nigeria or Iraq or Brazil or Mexico and we met with those girls. It's their stories that have stuck with me and will stick with me till the end of my years because it's their faces and their plights and their stories and their successes that actually make you feel like, okay, the work I'm doing here really is impacting a life. And with every life you impact, you're going to impact that many more. So selfish, but sitting with those <laughs> girls on a dirt floor, you know, in, in Kurdistan or somewhere in Iraq, there are no words to tell you, to tell anyone how blessed I feel. I mean, you are just such a truly exceptional human being. And I knew that <laughs> no. already, but I'm so incredibly privileged to know you and be having this chat with you. I can't put to words how many goosebumps this has given me. And one of the things that springs to mind on the whole topic of pathways and fulfillment and success, firstly, you've used the word success a couple of times in terms of the young women's successes, in terms of your own successes. And I think something that's very difficult when you operate at this incredibly impactful global level is what is your next chapter when the last one literally saved people's lives or literally changed education for a country? You know what I mean? Like yeah. how do you ever live up to your own experiences then when you're living at this huge at a Nobel Peace Prize kind of level. And I, I imagine for Malala as well. I mean, that's a huge question. Yeah, I'm very proud of her. She's taking a year off and oh, she's become the chair of her own board and uh, she'll go on to change lives and I hope her own and really, um, you know, keep doing what she's doing. As for me, I've left the board of trade and it was a, a you know, a great experience. I came back to Toronto and now I'm, I'm going to use your word, Sarah, agitating <laughs> to do something. This is something that will be, and I can't say too much because I've, I've got a partner and we're working on a new venture, but um, I'll just say this. I want to go back to impacting lives. I want to go back to working in service to young people or to refugees or to women. And maybe even a combo of all three is all I can say. But mm. um, I think what I've learned is I'm 50. I want to work for the next five years. And in those uh, five years, I really want to make sure that every single day I'm doing something that's going to impact someone else. Yeah. And um, I think that's a reflection of who I am, but also how I was brought up and what I want to be leaving behind is this idea that you can best serve your country if you really focus on what you're passionate about and make that passion sort of land somewhere every single day. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, if I do my, I can't make this shit up podcast <laughs> or Farah files, then come back on, we'll have a chat. And then I promise you, I'll tell you then what I'm about to launch. Oh my gosh. It's so exciting. <laughs> Is that a deal? Absolutely a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. How do you know, though, when you're doing something that is hitting all of your criteria and is, you know, building towards the legacy that you want to leave? I think we outgrow our roles, right? Like you do start to feel those little niggles of, you know, I need to agitate for change. And this chapter might have, you know, once it was my dream, but the comfort zone catches up to you. So, mm -hmm. you know, you've always sort of once you hit those goals, you have to keep evolving and for other people who are experiencing maybe those first little hints of maybe I've become a bit comfortable or it's time to move on, how do you make that shift? That's how hard. do you take a jump when you're approaching, you know, the next phase? Look, you have to be comfortable with risk. 
when I left Belinda and started Girls 20, I didn't, I was not taking a salary. I didn't have a lot of savings. Well, I had some savings, but it was a risk. You have to be a comfortable with risk. I would say two, you really have to have faith in yourself because there's going to be some really hard days when you go, did I make the right decision? You know, when I think of something, if it makes my heart flutter and I think about it again, five days later, and my heart's fluttering even more then I know that I've, I'm not in the right space. I know that sounds kind of flippant and I don't mean it that way, but I sort of think about, am I sleeping well? Am I happy? Do I want to get out of bed? Um, do I want to talk to people about what I want, what I'm doing? If you can't describe your, you know, what you're doing, how you're spending your, your time, what your job is with any amount of passion, then I think it's probably time to move on. Mm. That's sort of how I've done it. I also, I'm again, so fortunate to have really incredible people in my life, some really amazing girlfriends, unbelievable mentors, great guy friends who will sort of say, Farah, you know, just stop talking about it and do it. <laughs> no, I, I think you got to surround yourself with enablers. Yes. Right? People oh. who can sort of say, Farah, your eyes are not that bright when you talk about X, but when you talk about Y, wow, we can't contain you. That kind of confidence building is helpful. So having enablers, being able to sleep on your decisions, trusting yourself, being comfortable with risk, even if it's small risk, you know, even baby step risks. I think those are the ingredients that have worked for me. There'll be variations of that and a few other things that other people will look to, but that's sort of been my my recipe um, for change. And I've never been one to tread water. Somebody said that to me really early in my career. You need to get out because you're not a, you don't tread water. And it's true. Though I like to swim, I do not like to tread. And I can tell when I'm <laughs> treading water. And then I just get antsy and I get a little disappointed in myself. And then I'm, I give myself the pep talk about, Farah, you can do this. <laughs> so, you know, there's all those things, right? I wish there was one recipe for everyone to follow. But I think we just got to, you know, again, how do you want to be remembered? I don't need to have my name in the lights. I don't need to have, I just want people to know that I cared enough to make an impact. I think no one will be in doubt of that. You have an incredible legacy. If you stopped working today, you would have achieved more than most people. Well, thank you. That's incredibly kind. <laughs> so the very last section is your play TA. We've kind of, I mean, there's a whole section on nay TA, but we've kind of weaved that into the story. So this is the part where, particularly when you're passionate about your job and, you know, your great passions in life overlap with your profession, it becomes very all-consuming and difficult to kind of safeguard a part of yourself that just enjoys life. And, yes. you know, the step backwards that we talk about, I think you can only really be good at what you do, even if you love it, if you do get some distance every now and then and just, you know, let your brain forget what time it is, is how I describe it. So in between all of the incredible things that you're doing, yeah. I can't say that there'd be many hours left in between, but is there anything you do just for fun, mm -hmm. just for yay, that totally makes you forget your to-do list and, you know, that you get lost in? My yay has been always travel for fun. Mm. And now more and more and more, my yay is hanging out with my niece and my puppy. I am a new puppy <gasps> oh, owner. but So it's my niece and now a combo of my niece and my puppy because I have a cute little cockapoo in my life now. She's five months. <laughs> She's the most adorable thing. Her name is Stella. And I do forget what time it is. I really do. I mean, just hanging out with Haley. I, we can fall into a game of Uno, like no word of a lie. We can play Uno for an hour before I'm like, hey, are you hungry? <laughs> She's like, yeah, I was hungry about half an hour ago. I've really tried to be present, more and more and more present, not look at my phone, not worry about what's going on. 
and and it makes me forget what time it is and it's mm-hmm. lovely i've never been this person before mm-hmm. and i started being this person when i moved back to toronto after living in london for 2 years because i missed my family yeah. and i missed my friends yeah. and so being back that's what makes me go yay is spending time with my niece and my puppy obviously my friends you know there's a little bit of wine in there so you do forget the time <laughs> literally <laughs> but Forget as my bubble, great. exactly <laughs> but as my bubble gets smaller yeah those are the things that i hold most dear so second last question just to finish up what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation like weird middle names party oh my tricks, God. See, this, is, this is so crazy so okay so crazy is i don't have a middle name i really always wanted a middle name i always <laughs> wanted a middle name when i was going through security issues with my name because my name is just simply farah mohammed and i ended up on a couple of lists after 9 9 11 my friends were like Stop why it. don't you change yeah i did my friends were like why don't you change your name to mary elizabeth Margaret. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's going to help. Look at me. Um, no. So, okay. Weird things about me. So things that never would come up usually was that refugee part, but now I think the story is blown on that one. Okay. Weird things are I fall a lot. So I have the knees of a 13 year old boy. Ooh. I do. My knees are so scraped up. It's like, you know, I have uh, broken my hand walking from the villa door to my car I tripped and fell, broke my hand, and now I'm missing a knuckle. That's a weird thing. What? Yes, I had to have an operation, and so they had to fuse my bone, and so my knuckle fell. Oh, my gosh. So it's a party trick. So I put it up. I only have, like, three knuckles. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's... That's amazing. <laughs> that's something that doesn't come up in kind of conversation, but people... Like, it's not like I can you know, do weird things with my arms and stuff. But if you just do that at a party, people are kind of grossed out by it. I'm like, it's just a knuckle that's missing. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> Halloween is coming up and you're already equipped. Like- <laughs> <laughs> no, my favorite Halloween costume, this is so bad, but so good. In a pinch one year when I was at university, they're like, come to a Halloween party. And I'm not really one for a dress up, but I'm like, okay, I'll go. And so I'm brown. So I took packets of sugar and I put them all over me. And people are like, what are you? I'm like, I'm brown sugar. <gasps> Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, so that was my, I'm headed up the door. Okay, so yeah, so I fall a lot. <laughs> I fall a lot and I'm missing a knuckle. And what else? Oh, when I take my glasses off, so I wear glasses a lot, like most of the time. But when I take my glasses off, my right eye goes inward, like almost immediately and then bounces back. Whoa. It's not Wait, gross. It, but it bounces back. So it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like within a second, it goes in and then it goes back to normal. Oh my gosh. Just figuring itself out. It's like, I'm just recalibrating. So. Just give me a moment. Yeah. I didn't notice. <laughs> I was, I was having like a picture taken for something and the guy's like, I'm going to give your eye a moment to settle. <laughs> I was like, you're going to give I'm going to give my eye a moment to settle that I've never forgotten it. And I don't know whether to tell people, but now I wear contacts to everything that I have to be in a picture for. <laughs> Just in case I goes never, <laughs> Those are words I never want to hear again in my life. How diplomatic of him though. Like what a lovely was, way to say it. Was. It. it wasn't like, it was. dude, what the fuck is happening with your eye there? It, <laughs> it, was, it was actually, it was fashion magazine and people laugh when they hear me say that because I, I dress in black constantly and my big fashion thing is boots. But they called me up. I was in um, Italy on vacation. And they're like, oh, we're trying to find Farah Muhammad. I'm like, you found her. They're like, it's Fashion Magazine. I said, oh, no, no, you found the wrong Farah Yeah, wrong, wrong Farah there are two of us here. There are two <laughs> yeah. of us here in Toronto. And they're like, no, no, aren't you the Girls 20 founder? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. They're like, well, we're doing a shoot on activists. I was like, oh. So they, I was like, okay, well, I'll just send you a picture, right? They're like, no, 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 we do a whole fashion shoot. Bring like... <gasps> 
six outfits and la la. I'm like, I have, I'm going to bring two and you're going to have to pick. They're both black. <laughs> and then I showed up for this thing and the guy's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to give your an eye a moment to settle. And it's like, <laughs> so strange. <laughs> well, there's another formative moment in your way there today. You go. Yeah. <laughs> so those are my top three. And I don't think I've ever shared that last one with anybody because I just thought, so weird. Oh, I'm anyway, so privileged, exclusive content. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and the very last question, what yes. is your favorite quote? Oh, gosh. This one does not have an author. Um, so, But I'm going to give it to you anyway because I think it explains a lot of how I operate. My favorite quote or saying is, know when to lead, know when to follow, and know when to get the hell out of the way. <gasps> That's such a good one. I am a walking quote dictionary and I've never heard that one before. Oh, yeah? Oh, What's yours? Incredible. What is yours? Ah, it's the Maya Angelou quote. People will never remember what you said or what you did. They will always remember how you made them feel. Yeah, that is so beautiful. Actually, you know what? That's perfect for you. Oh, yeah. I no, think it is. So. Like, I think the, and I think that's why I said yes to this podcast because, you know, we didn't, it's really interesting because you guys had all sort of met before I got there. You you guys were there a full day before I arrived on Necker. And you guys were all so warm and welcoming. And I remember when I came in and, you know, there's those back seats that were on a higher chair. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you remember this, but I'm I'm not tall. So getting on some of those chairs sometimes, it's not the easiest thing for me. And you said to me, come sit here. And it was a lower chair. Did I? You did. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very kind. I thought it was so kind. I can't like, believe really you remember kind. that. I do. I remember things like that because when you're short, you're like, where are all the tall people? And what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> I just was probably um, fangirling you so hard. I was like, I want to be her best friend. No, I remember come that because I walked in and um, you said, why don't you come and sit here? So either I looked like I was, like, as I said, I fall a lot. So either I looked like I was going to take one of my amazing tumbles, but I think maybe you were just being incredibly kind. And it oh. was like, that woman is not going to get on that chair with any amount of grace. <laughs> I was doing the math and I was like, mm-mm. Yeah, I, like, I see. An calculation. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I remember of our first meeting. Oh, oh I love that. And I'm so, yeah. so, so glad that I did that because it has <laughs> just too. been such, such. For a... so many reasons. <laughs> I, know. I just saw your knuckle and I was like, oh man. This is this going to be an issue. <laughs> like, look at her eye and her knuckle. I got to help that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like, oh my God, where is she even looking? I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> oh my God, I haven't laughed this oh, hard in ages. Laugh. <laughs> That's, I mean, there's nothing like a good laugh, right? Seriously. Oh my God, absolutely. And that's every episode. Oh I'm gosh. like, I, I love to cover really important things to like give a voice to really important issues but then like have a massive chuckle at the end as well it's just about the ridiculous stuff that comes out yeah oh, that is so man. funny that is so brilliant thank you, you so much for making me laugh <laughs> <laughs> so much mutual admiration going on right now farah thank you so so much for joining thank you that was a lot of fun What a hysterical way to end. I could barely breathe at this point. But that's why I love this one so much. We could chat about some of the most solemn topics from September 11 and perspectives I'd never heard so intimately to giggling about the activity of an eyeball. (laughs) That's what I love about making this show so much. Of course, as always, please share away tagging at Farah Mohammed. I will include the link and the spelling in the show notes. And myself, we love to know what you think, 
what this sparks for you so we can reshare and also help keep our lovely Yeighborhood growing. And if you're not in the Facebook Yeighborhood just yet, there are some extra weekly giveaways or giveaways as I call them and fun and games in there too. Link is also in the episode notes. Hope you are having an amazing week and a seizing your yay.